Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the Bad Philosopher Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Levesque, and today we're going to be going into part two of our series on understanding modern China through its ancient philosophy. So on last week's episode, we talked a lot about this Confucian ideal of social harmony. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about virtue, about how one can go about developing a virtuous character. And from there, we're going to finish things off talking about how these two concepts, how this idea of harmony and this idea of virtue, how they relate to modern China today. So if you haven't yet listened to part one of this series, I would highly recommend you do so because we are going to be referencing some of the things we talked about on that last episode, but otherwise, if you don't want to do that, you can probably stick around and get through this episode just fine. So last week in part one of this topic on Confucianism and modern China, I talked about how a group of Chinese locals took me and my roommate out for dinner around the time that we first arrived in China. And I talked about how this act of hospitality embodied some of the virtues of Confucianism in Chinese society. And now I'm going to start off this episode with a different kind of story, a different type of interaction. A similar scenario, but one that went very differently. So after our first encounter with Chinese hospitality, we, me and my roommate were a bit disarmed. We figured that after being welcomed by locals like this, we didn't really have anything to worry about at all. A little while later, we were both out getting some food at an outdoor barbecue-type place after teaching our evening classes at this English language school we both worked at. And this night, there was this local guy there alone who came by and sat with us, and he actually spoke very good English, which was a total rarity for the area we were in. Most of the time, none of the locals could speak any or much English at all. But here was this guy from this town, a local himself, but... He was seemingly fairly advanced or nearly fluent in English. So he joined us and we got to chatting for quite a while while eating our meals. We told him that we were English teachers and then he asked us if we would be willing to give private lessons to some relative of his. And here we said we weren't sure we would have to check with the school that we worked for because we were technically under contract with them and as part of that contract we weren't supposed to give private lessons to anyone outside of that school so... I mean, really, we were just trying to kind of get out of that and change the subject, but anyways, he ended up inviting us to a tea house to chat. He said that a friend of his owned a tea house and he wanted us to come and have tea with him that night. So based on our previous experience with Chinese locals being very hospitable, we took him up on that offer. We wrapped up our meal and we went with him. We ended up walking there. It ended up being like a 15 to 20 minute walk across town. It was actually a pretty long way. And he had initially said it was a short walk. I remember he was actually walking abnormally fast and we were having trouble keeping up with him even though he was a pretty short guy. We were kind of hustling along to keep up with him as we walked to this tea house. And when we got there, the place was very fancy. Kind of like something you'd expect to see out of a movie. Something you'd expect rich people to be at. And there were some oddities here with this whole interaction that I still don't really understand. The vibe with this guy was very strange, and it was also strange at this tea house. When we got there, we asked if the place was expensive, and he said yes, it's very expensive. But he told us that he'd told his friend we were having a business meeting and that everything would be on the house this time. So kind of red flags all around here, right? And like I said, we were disarmed by the whole local hospitality thing, so we didn't really think much of it. Anyways, we ended up getting a private room area, and we sat down and had tea. 
I remember the guy we were with, he was speaking kind of rudely, seemingly so, to the staff at the tea house, and there was a bit of a change in the dynamics. I remember him being really nice when we showed up and talking to the people there really kindly, but then once we were actually in a private room sitting down, he seemed to be acting kind of rude. And he kept on asking for more and more things, more snacks, more food, and so on. We spotted a menu somewhere and saw that everything on the menu was priced pretty high. We're talking $5 for like a tiny little bowl of peanuts or something like that. Anyways, as we were hanging out, drinking tea, he pushed us again about teaching English privately. And we said again that we would have to check with the school because of our contract situation and I think we suggested that if he went through the school we worked at, we could do private lessons that way. For some reason, he wouldn't really drop the issue. At some point, a hostess or someone came up and said something to him and his demeanor changed. Again, no idea what this entire situation was about. I think we offered to pay or something, but he said no because we were his guests. Despite his good English, everything he was saying was kind of confusing. And like I said, his demeanor kept changing kind of rapidly. He started off being pretty nice and accommodating. Then at some point he shifted to being a bit more rude. And then after this hostess said something to him, he got kind of seemingly depressed or something. I don't really know how to describe it. He was like sullen. And pretty suddenly after that, he actually shifted topics entirely and started talking about air conditioners. He told us about how he was a salesperson for some fancy air conditioning units and basically gave us a sales pitch about how these air conditioning units were built with Japanese technology and used some sort of ionized air molecules or something. I have no idea what it was all about, but he was telling us that by breathing the air from these air conditioners, it would vastly improve our health by breathing in these ionized air molecules or something like that. He then went on to say that the price for these units was the equivalent of like $700 per unit or something like that. We told him that we weren't interested in buying one because we were only in China for a short period of time. And then his next words were the most shocking. He said that if we bought 100 units of these air conditioners, we could get a discounted price of like $500 per unit. I think he wrote out the price for buying like 100 units on a piece of paper. And it was something like $50,000. At this point, me and my roommate looked at each other and we were both like, what is going on? Has this guy lost his mind or something? Like, I think we even laughed at how ridiculous what he had just said was. And then we tried to clarify what he was talking about. He reiterated his statement. He said that if we did this deal with him and bought, say, 100 air conditioning units from him, he would give us a great deal on them, and also saying that we could easily resell them in Canada or the UK and make a good profit. So we just flat out told him that we weren't interested and that we didn't have that kind of money and that this was an incredible amount of money to spend on something we didn't need, like a bunch of air conditioners, not to mention the logistical problems of having 100 air conditioners and trying to ship them somewhere else and all of that kind of hassle. He then said that he, he could help us with shipping, he'd help us organize everything, and that because we were from Canada and the UK that we could afford this kind of thing, and that we could even split it, so we each get like 50 units, and then we'd go back home and sell them for more money. Again, we told him, and we told him with some finality here, that we just weren't interested in air conditioners at all, and that he'd brought us here to talk about teaching a relative of his, but he totally changed the topic, and we had no interest in air conditioners.
It did seem at this point like the teaching of a relative was sort of a ploy to get us to go to this business meeting with him at this tea house and try to sell us air conditioners. Just totally out of left field. So after this rejection, he seemed kind of pissed off. I don't know if he was expecting some negotiation or like a prolonged meeting or something. I'm not sure. But he basically stopped communicating with us much at all and started chatting with other people at the tea house. It was a super awkward scene and we didn't know how to graciously leave or anything like that. At some point we ended up telling him that we needed to get home because we needed to sleep that night because we had classes to teach in the morning, which was true, and we ended up exchanging numbers with him. So after our meeting with him, after we left the tea house and we started the walk back to our apartment, we I texted the guy the number that he gave me and I thanked him for the tea and so on and reiterated to him that if he wanted to get his relative English lessons, he should go through the school we worked at to arrange private English lessons with one of us. But I never heard anything back from him from this number that he gave me. Now, several months later, we were out at the same outdoor barbecue place getting food after class, and this time with one of our Chinese colleagues. That guy we had went to the tea house with happened to be there. But when we said hello, he totally ignored us. He was acting strangely, but we just said, oh well, like, maybe he's still annoyed that we wouldn't buy air conditioners from him, and we kind of tried to tell our Chinese colleague this story of what had happened. And as we were sitting there, two of the guys from our first encounter with Chinese hospitality from that group of guys that took us out that night for dinner and drinks and to launch those lanterns, they showed up at the same place to eat there. They came over and said hi to us and then sat down at the table next to us, and since neither of them really spoke much English, they kind of chatted to our Chinese colleague and we had a little bit of back and forth with some translation. They happened to be carrying a case of beer with them, and they actually just handed us a couple of beer to drink at the table we were at, which was nice of them, but also funny because we had just turned down buying beer from the food stall owner. In China, it's actually totally fine and normal to bring your own drinks and even your own food to a restaurant, at least most of the time anyways. So in this case, you know, we didn't buy beer from the outdoor restaurant owner, but these guys came in with their own case of beer and handed us over a couple bottles. So our Chinese colleagues said that they, the guys were saying that they know us and that they had fun hanging out with us that night and then sort of quizzically asked us, like, how do you know these guys? Like, where did you meet them? Kind of thing. So while this was going on, the guy who had taken us to this tea house and tried to sell us air conditioners, he was sitting a couple tables away and he was kind of faced away from us and he started talking loudly. At first I thought maybe he was on the phone or something, like he wasn't sitting with anyone or looking at anyone, he was just talking into the air. But then the other guys who were at the table next to us who had just given us a couple of beers started chatting back to him. They started having sort of a back and forth conversation with this tea house guy, not even really looking over at us. I think he glanced over a couple times or something. And the conversation sounded kind of heated, like there was some back and forth discussion going on here. The colleague we were with translated a little bit for us, and they said that this guy was saying he had taken us to a tea house for tea and agreed to be friends with him, but then we never called him back or contacted him, basically saying that we just like ghosted him. And this annoyed me because it was the opposite of what really happened, but the people there who we also knew came to our defense and basically told this guy that they knew us and that we were good people, and later on they told us that the guy who was talking badly about us was acting super strangely and didn't make much sense, but was basically just trying to trash us as being bad people. 
small town China problems, I guess. But anyways, nothing much else happened, and that was the end of that. It was sort of just a strange interaction, and I don't think we ever saw that guy again. And why do I bring up this story at all? I mean, so this story, to me, it it reflects the opposite of those Confucian values that I want to talk about. In that story from the last podcast about true local hospitality, those people embodied the ideals of virtuous behavior according to Confucius and Chinese tradition. They treated us with humaneness and goodwill, and they didn't try to get anything out of us. This second experience, though, with this air conditioner guy, was the total opposite of that. From the beginning, he was acting strangely as though he wanted to get something from us. I mean, he led with the idea of us giving private English lessons to his relative and then ended up trying to sell us air conditioners. And this is not the correct way to go about social interactions according to Confucianism. In this way, he was treating us and treating other people as a means to an end, rather than as people with a shared interest in maintaining a harmonious society. So today, I want to continue a little bit talking about Confucian harmony, but also talking about the ideal of virtue and what constitutes virtuous behavior, or a virtuous character. And basically, this idea of virtue is concerned with the question of how does one become a good person? Because ultimately, according to Confucius, it's only through cultivating one's good, virtuous character that we can ever hope to achieve a harmonious society for everyone. So let's dive right into what Confucius is talking about here. So in the Analects of Confucius, this idea of virtue is talked about a lot. It's a frequent subject of conversation. And there isn't any strict definition offered here. It isn't a systematized, logical system per se. It's more of like a a lesson by example. They talk about what virtue looks like, what it looks like when someone is expressing or embodying virtue, and then also describing what virtue isn't. At one point in the Analects, Confucius says to one of his disciples, he says, and I quote, Those who possess virtue will inevitably have something to say, whereas those who have something to say do not necessarily possess virtue. Those who are good will necessarily display courage, but those who display courage are not necessarily good. So this passage actually has a lot of similarities with ancient Greek philosophers that formed the basis of Western philosophy as we know it today, particularly with Plato and Aristotle. Plato taught that there's a big difference between people who use language and rhetoric to pretend like they know things and the people who actually do know things and he had a huge problem with these types of people. We still see this tension today in our modern discourse. There are a lot of people out there chiming in with their opinions on a whole lot of topics because doing so is so easy and frictionless in our digital age, especially through social media. But how many of these people actually know what they're talking about? So just because someone says something that might sound good or convincing doesn't mean that they actually know anything or know anything about the subject that they're talking about. And for Aristotle, we also get this idea called the doctrine of the mean, and this is the idea that there is a middle way between two extremes, and that ultimately achieving goodness or virtue comes by navigating through the middle of these two extremes. Now, Aristotle uses courage as an example here. He says that, of course, we wouldn't say that someone who's behaving cowardly is courageous. Also, he says, by the same token, we shouldn't consider someone who's acting foolishly and recklessly and putting themselves in excess danger to be courageous either. 
Real courage is a balance between the two, someone who takes the middle path. They take measured risks. They don't risk their lives for nothing, but they also don't shy away from danger when they need to be courageous. That's why we call some people cowards and some people reckless. True courage is this middle path between someone who's cowardly and someone who's reckless. Now this type of comparison is super interesting to me because you also have the works of Confucius being compiled around the same time as Aristotle was writing, but they're about 8,000 kilometers away from each other with no means of communicating back and forth. I mean, it's not like Confucius and Aristotle were writing each other letters at this time. And yet, they did have similar ideas when it came to virtuous behavior and becoming a good person, and they even used similar analogies as with the example of courage. I think what Confucius is ultimately getting at here with this passage is that those we see displaying courage aren't necessarily doing courage the right way. It might actually be recklessness, or it might actually be cowardliness with a facade of courageousness. Real courage, to Confucius, is a balanced approach that one develops through developing one's virtuous character. And, as Confucius tells us, one of the ways that we can cultivate this virtuous character amongst ourselves is through learning. In another passage, Confucius says, and I quote, In ancient times, scholars learned for their own sake. These days, they learn for the sake of others. Now, the translator of the version of the Analects that I'm using, Edward Slingerland, he includes a commentary from a 6th century Chinese scholar named Huang Kan. And Khan says, when commenting on this passage from Confucius, he says, and I quote, The ancients learned about those things in which they themselves did not yet excel. Thus, they would study the way of the former kings, desiring thereby to personally put it into practice and perfect themselves, nothing more. People in Confucius' age, on the other hand, did not learn in order to remedy flaws in their own behavior but rather with the sole purpose of lording it over others and having others praise them as excellent. So with this passage, Huang Khan is writing about a thousand years after Confucius was alive. And we need to remember too that in Confucius' own age, he was referencing the behavior of the ancients of people that came before him. Because Confucius lived in a time of social decline when this idea of social harmony and virtuous character was sort of being diminished. Now, it was Confucius' life work at the time to sort of reverse this trend. He wanted to bring social harmony and virtue back to the forefront of Chinese society. Unfortunately, that didn't end up happening within his lifetime. But to Confucius, the path towards doing this was through learning. He identifies a problem here of people who learn not for learning's sake, but who learn in order to gain some kind of advantage. The message here is that Learning for the sake of learning brings truer wisdom and truer self-cultivation than if you're learning for some sort of reward, financial or otherwise. And in this time, a lot of people sought out learning and instruction from wise people like Confucius in the hopes that they themselves could eventually become the advisor or minister to some ruler, which would bring them both fame and fortune. What Confucius is saying here with this passage is that that is not the correct way to go about things. If you're trying to learn for a reward, then naturally your learning is going to be a little bit corrupted. You're only going to learn things that will bring you material value. And then you're going to miss a lot of things that are important but don't bring the same level of prestige or success. 
Now, to me, this sentiment makes a whole lot of sense. I didn't go into studying philosophy because I thought it would bring me career success. I did it because I was most interested in the topic and because I love learning for the sake of learning. In another part of the Analects, Confucius is asked about how he attained all of his wisdom, and he goes on to describe how his predisposition towards learning from a young age is what allowed him to ultimately become wise. It wasn't by anything specific that he did, just by continually applying himself towards attaining knowledge over many, many decades. And he acknowledges that this is a very long path. He even gives us a little bit of an autobiography. When talking about his lifelong learning, Confucius says, and I quote, At 15, I set my mind upon learning. At 30, I took my place in society. At 40, I became free of doubts. At 50, I understood the way. At 60, my ear was attuned. And at 70, I could follow my heart's desires without overstepping the bounds of correctness. So what we see here in this little mini-autobiography is this idea of moral cultivation over a long period of time. And here this isn't in the form of a hermit restricted to book learning. I mean, much of Confucius' cultivation of virtue comes about through his interactions with society and with other people. He says that as a teenager, he dedicated himself to learning. By the time he was 30, he took his place in society. That means he got to begin applying what he had learned and begin learning more by interacting with society. He says that at the age of 40, he was free of any doubt, and at 50, he understood the way. And to Confucius, the way means attuning oneself to this cultivation of a virtuous character. And one does this by practicing Li, the following of traditions and rituals, and practicing Ren, this humaneness and goodwill towards other people. Then he says that by age 60, his ear was attuned, meaning he became a good listener. And we see this a lot in the Analogues. People are often coming to Confucius with a question, and he listens to their question and then responds accordingly. This is the art of becoming a good listener. He then says that by age 70, he could follow his heart's desires without overstepping this idea of correctness. And what that means is that he was fully attuned to this idea of virtue. He had cultivated his character to such a point where he no longer needed to think about what his next action would be. As a wise and virtuous person, Confucius could just act. And because he was so wise and virtuous, his actions would always be correct. And this also closely aligns with this idea of Wu Wei, or effortless action. By the time someone becomes so virtuous and wise in their character, maintaining that virtuous character is effortless. It's not something one really needs to think about. But in order to reach that state, as we see with Confucius, it requires a lifetime of learning. Now, this idea of cultivating one's virtue ultimately harkens back to harmony. In essence, navigating all of these social relationships that are important to a harmonious society requires that one have a virtuous character. It's only through having a virtuous character that one can know how to act in a correct manner. To demonstrate how virtue and harmony are related, Confucius talks about filial piety, which, as we talked about on the last episode of the podcast, was heavily undermined by Mao Zedong's cultural revolution of the 1960s and 70s. In describing this bond between parents and children, Confucius says, and I quote, In serving your parents, you may gently remonstrate with them. That means argue with them. 
However, once it becomes apparent that they have not taken your criticism to heart, you should be respectful and not oppose them, and follow their lead diligently without resentment. Commenting on this passage, translator Edward Slingerland says, and I quote, One owes one's parents a unique level of obedience, one that transcends legal responsibilities and that exceeds even the demands of dutifulness in the political realm. So, within Confucianism, there is a distinction between different types of social relationships. In another ancient Chinese text called the Record of Ritual, it advises that a son serving his parents may protest three times, but if after three times the son's protests are not heeded by the parents, there's nothing left for the son to do but to go along with the wishes of the parents. But things are a lot different when it comes to the arrangement of a a minister or an advisor serving a ruler. If a minister protests three times with his lord and is not heeded, the minister should leave the lord's service. He should resign. This is because the father-son relationship and the lord and minister relationship are very different types of relationships. The parent-child relationship is thought of as a sacred familial relationship whereas the lord-to-minister relationship is supposed to be governed by moral rightness and virtue. So in this case, if the minister is not being heeded by his lord, then he's not being respected, and so his service may no longer be needed or useful. Children, though, can never get out of service to their parents because of this sort of sacred status familial relationships have. To me, this shows that there's quite a lot of depth and nuance in these different types of relationships and how they relate to building a harmonious society. For Confucius, harmony always remains the central concern. At one point, Confucius says, and I quote, The gentleman harmonizes, and he does not merely agree. The petty person agrees, but he does not harmonize. So here we're also seeing an explicit distinction between harmony and uniformity. Harmony does not mean uniformity and falling in line. A passage from one of the traditional commentaries included in this edition of the Analects that I'm using elaborates on this a little bit more. It discusses the difference between one who harmonizes and one who simply agrees or follows orders. And the analogy here goes like this. Harmonizing is like cooking a soup. So we're back to the soup metaphor. With a soup, you have many different ingredients, you heat them up, and the cook harmonizes the ingredients together, balancing the various flavors and finding the right taste, finding a balance. When a correct balance and a correct taste has been established, then the Lord eats the soup, and it serves to relax his heart, as this commentary puts it. Now this commentator says that the relationship between a ruler and a minister is just like this. A ruler and a minister might disagree on many things, but it is through discussion and harmonizing that they're able to figure out between them what things to discard and what things to pursue. Now here the commentator says, and I quote, In this way, government is perfected, with no infringement on what is right, and the common people are rendered free of contentiousness. So this commentator goes on to say from here that, If the minister simply agrees with the ruler as to what actions are good or bad, then this isn't a good thing. They say, and I quote, This is like trying to season water with more water. Who would be willing to eat it? And it's not acceptable for a minister to merely agree with their ruler on everything. That's not the role of a good minister. 
This system that Confucius describes promotes discourse between minister and ruler. The one thing we don't want is a ruler that always has their say and doesn't take advice. This leads to disharmony. And this is a problem that's still prevalent today. We still have this mythology around people who are surrounded by yes-men, people who have advisors or staff around them that will just say yes to anything they want to do. Nobody around them will speak up and disagree with them, and nobody will share a contentious opinion that might disagree. In another passage, Confucius is asked how to deal with virtue and vice. And Confucius says, and I quote, Put service first and reward last. Is this not the way to accumulate virtue? Attack the bad qualities of yourself rather than the badness of others. Is this not the way to remedy vice? Now the emphasis here is to focus on the self rather than on externalities. Focus on how you can be of service rather than the rewards you'll get for your service. Focus on correcting your own faults rather than on the faults of others. This is simple and timeless advice about how to become a good person or cultivate your virtuous character. But we don't heed this advice very well, unfortunately. It's still a problem in society today that a lot of our actions are motivated by rewards, and we spend a lot of time criticizing others without really looking at ourselves. As I mentioned, one of the ultimate goals of developing one's virtuous character, according to Confucius, is to achieve this state of wu-wei, of effortless action. And this is this ideal where the virtuous person doesn't need to take action to bring about good things. Their presence alone as a virtuous person, as an example, is enough to cause good things to happen, to inspire others to themselves be virtuous. The idea here is that the ideal person is so well-learned and so virtuous and so cultivated in their moral character that their mere example alone is enough to promote harmony throughout society. Now, when talking about this, and at one point Confucius is questioned by someone saying, well, if someone's ruling by this wu-wei effortless action thing, does that mean they're not doing anything? Like, how do we know if they're actually virtuous people ruling in this wu-wei fashion or if they're just, you know, some lazy dictator? Confucius responds to this about a specific ruler saying, and I quote, What did he do? He made himself reverent and took his proper ritual position facing south. That is all. Now here, the translator Edward Slingerland has a good interpretation of this passage. He goes on to say, and I quote, It is likely that this refers to ruling by means of virtue. The ruler morally perfects himself and thereby effortlessly transforms everyone around him. Wu Wei, in this sense, is thus not meant literally doing nothing, the point rather being that one does not force anything or attempt consciously to achieve results. One simply follows the desires of the heart, and everything else falls into place. So this means that if one has properly cultivated their virtuous character, they don't need to do anything spectacular. With a virtuous leader at the helm, the state basically runs itself because everyone else is inspired by this virtuous example being set by the ruler. As Slingerland goes on to say, and I quote, This idea of ruling by not ruling, concentrating on self-cultivation and inner virtue and allowing external things to come naturally and non-coercively, has been a constant theme throughout the Analects. 
So obviously this was a very important concept to Confucius, this ruling by not ruling. And there's also this related idea of participating without directly participating. Confucius says in another passage, he says, and I quote, Thus, in being a filial son and a good brother, one is already taking part in government. What need is there, then, to speak of participating in government? Slingerland says that this points to the ideal of effortless action, of wu-wei. Your participation shouldn't be something that you actively pursue, but rather a consequence of your virtuous action, a consequence, a side effect of being a good person. By perfecting yourself and maintaining your own familial relations the way you're supposed to, you will be virtuous in your conduct. And this is where the true value of one's participation in society is. It's not just through taking direct action, it's through maintaining proper social relations at all levels of society. Now, I hope this has laid a little bit of a groundwork for our next task, which is getting into the issue of governance and what Confucius says about governing well. In another section of the Analects, a duke asks Confucius about military formations. Now, this is at a stage when Confucius is being employed by this duke as an advisor. And when asked about military formations, Confucius replies to the duke saying, and I quote, I know something about the arrangement of ceremonial stands and dishes for ritual offerings, but I have never learned about the arrangement of battalions and divisions. Apparently, Confucius left this state and the employment of this duke the very next day. And here we see the point that in employing Confucius, Confucius is being utilized incorrectly. As someone who promotes virtue as a way to rule a state, to govern, and to make a state prosper, this orientation towards military formations and military action is the opposite of the Confucian ideal. Confucius does not believe in the idea of using military force to maintain order. He comments on this further, saying, and I quote, If you try to guide the common people with coercive regulations and keep them in line with punishments, the common people will become evasive and will have no sense of shame. If, however, you guide them with virtue and keep them in line by means of ritual, the people will have a sense of shame and will rectify themselves. So here, again, we see this effortless action and this non-interventionist idea. It almost resembles modern libertarianism, the idea that the state shouldn't be there to intervene and change people's behavior directly. Instead, the state should be there to uphold this ideal of virtuous behavior, and through this ideal, society will be transformed. Confucius goes on, and I quote, Oversee them with dignity, and the people will be respectful. Oversee them with filiality and kindness, and the people will be dutiful. Oversee them by raising up the accomplished and instructing those who are unable, and the people will be industrious. So here we have this idea where the ruler takes ownership of the people's behavior or the people's conduct. If the people are failing in some manner, it's on the ruler. It's, it's the ruler's responsibility to correct their behavior, and not through direct oppressive action, but through showing them the correct way to go about things. And Confucius backs this up further. He goes on to say, and I quote, when the ruler is correct, his will is put into effect without the need for official orders. When the ruler is not correct, he will not be obeyed no matter how many orders he issues. 
So there really is a lot of nuance to this system, and it's ultimately a system that insists on upholding social order and harmony wherever possible. At one point, Confucius is asked directly for advice about governing. He says to simply make sure that there is enough food, enough defenses, and that you have the confidence of the common people. When asked which of these three things he would sacrifice if it couldn't be avoided, he said he would sacrifice the defenses. He's then asked which of the remaining two things he would sacrifice to govern well, food or the confidence of the people. If absolutely necessary, which of these things would he choose to get rid of? Confucius replies, and I quote, I would sacrifice the food. Death has always been with us, but a state cannot stand once it has lost the confidence of the people. So here it's supposed by Confucius that maintaining the support of the people is of paramount importance. And doing so means a ruler who is virtuous and leads by example and governs in this woo-way, sort of hands-off, effortless action kind of style. Ultimately, this is what creates a harmonious state. You could have all of the food in the world and all of the defenses in the world, but if the people don't believe in their ruler, the state is going to fall apart. And I think now we're sort of getting to the core of this Confucian ideal about what proper governance looks like. And this is the direction I want to go in so that we can start talking about China's modern form of governance and how it relates to this Confucian idea of governance. In another passage in the Analects, Confucius says, and I quote, To govern means to be correct. If you set an example by being correct yourself, who will dare to be incorrect? The idea here again relates to this Wu Wei style of governing. If a ruler themselves is virtuous and correct, then the people they govern can't possibly find themselves to be incorrect. This is because you have a supremely virtuous ruler. It's not that the people must be correct or else they'll be punished, but that they won't be able to help themselves. They'll naturally just behave well and act good towards others. They'll act towards the common good of all people because that's the example that their ruler sets for them. In a different passage, someone asks Confucius for some advice on this, about this problem of theft and how to deal with the prevalence of robbers in their particular state. Confucius responds, saying, and I quote, If you could just get rid of your own excessive desires, the people would not steal even if you rewarded them for it. So here, again, we see the ruler is being blamed for the immorality of the people. If the ruler desires great riches and goes about their daily lives trying to gain power and gain wealth, then this tendency is going to rub off on the common people too. They're also going to desire riches and power. That's the example set for them by their ruler. If their ruler steals from other states, then the people are going to steal from each other. And if the ruler isn't trusting of other people, then how can the people be trusting of the ruler or of anyone else in the state? Now, the goal of creating this harmonious society, ruled by a benevolent and virtuous ruler, is to bring about the flourishing of the common people. And to Confucius, this is the ultimate goal, or should be the ultimate goal, of any ruler. They want the people to flourish. There's a story related in the Analects where a duke says to his advisor that his state has had a poor harvest, and as a result, his income is way down. This duke isn't getting the income that he expects to get, and he asks his advisor what he should do about it. 
His advisor responds, telling him to try taxing the common people a 10% tax on their annual harvest. The duke responds to this, saying, well, I'm currently taxing them 20%, and even so, I can't satisfy all of my needs. How could reducing the tax to 10% help at all? His advisor responds very poignantly. The advisor says, and I quote, If the common people's needs are satisfied, how could their lord be lacking? If the common people's needs are not satisfied, how can their lord be content? The context here with this passage is that traditionally there was a 10% tax on agricultural production in any given state throughout China, but in some places it was later doubled to 20%. And once it doubled, it became standard practice. That's the thing with taxes when the money is going to the ruler, for the ruler's benefit. If taxes are increased, then what incentive is there for a ruler to decrease the taxes back to the base level? So the suggestion here of this advisor to their duke of a tax cut is pretty radical. Slingerland here cites a story where Confucius says that the purpose of government is to make the common people rich, and that this can be done by lowering taxes. In response, a duke says that if he reduces taxes, he himself would become poor. Confucius' response, he says, I have never seen a situation where the children were rich and the parents poor. So here we maintain this focus on governance by virtue and minimal intervention. Maybe Confucius really is a libertarian. The message here is that a ruler should serve the people, not vice versa. The ruler should promote prosperity among the people, not prosperity for themselves or for their own benefit. And there are other similar sentiments about this low interventionist ideology. At another point in the Analects, Confucius is asked about maintaining law and order. And he says, and I quote, What is necessary is to bring it about that there is no civil litigation at all. And by this, he means that if a virtuous ruler can transform the people and bring about social harmony, there will be no need for punishments. The ruler sets a moral example and the people follow. This is an ideal of non-coercive Wu Wei style of government. Following Li, proper ritual, is fundamental to this. Slingerland cites a text called Dai's Record that discusses how the nuance of following ritual is different from the crudeness of rule by law and punishment. Dai's Record states, and I quote, Generally speaking, people can easily understand what is past but have trouble seeing what is to come. Ritual guards against what is yet to come, whereas laws are created after the fact to deal with what is already past. This is why the usefulness of laws is easy to see, whereas the reason for the existence of ritual is hard to perceive. What is valuable about ritual is that it destroys badness before it has had a chance to sprout up. It inspires respectfulness in even the most trivial and easily overlooked aspects of life and thereby daily moves the common people toward goodness and keeps them away from transgression without them even being aware of it. This is the point Confucius' comment about litigation is supposed to make, that we can replace litigation, rule by law and punishment, with rule by ritual. If everyone followed proper ritual, you wouldn't really need law and order. The people would naturally govern themselves according to proper ritual and proper tradition. In another passage, Confucius is asked if it's a good idea to execute bad people in a state 
so that the good people can live harmoniously amongst themselves. Confucius' reply here is, and I quote, In your governing, sir, what need is there for executions? If you desire goodness, then the common people will be good. The virtue of a ruler is like the wind, and the virtue of a petty person is like the grass. When the wind moves over the grass, the grass is sure to bend. Now the context here is that of a leader who is virtuous, a leader who leads by example. But we also get this allusion to the common people being like bending grass. And while the context here is that the common people will be good if their leader is good, there's certainly room here for the virtue aspect of this passage to be misconstrued with authority. That is, how do the common people distinguish between a leader who is virtuous and a leader who is simply an authoritarian who makes themselves out to be this virtuous exemplar? Slingerland comments on this series of passages, saying, and I quote, Throughout traditional Chinese texts on rulership, the common people are portrayed as childlike and easily influenced by their superiors, and therefore not totally accountable for their behavior. Some modern scholars of Confucianism present passages such as this as examples of how traditional China had something like the modern Western liberal democratic ideal of governmental accountability. But it is important not to lose sight of how distinct from modern liberal ideas the early Confucian conception actually was. That is, while we might compare some of the things Confucius is saying to modern liberal democratic societies or libertarian ideals, it's actually a very different thing. Democracy definitely was not intended or even conceived of here. This is an organized top-down rule from a ruler who ideally will be a benevolent person, but as we've seen in history time and time again, a ruler is more likely to be a dictator and authoritarian than a truly good and virtuous person. And this holds true when we look at modern China. This modern political machinery we see in China today, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, portrays itself as this absolutely virtuous entity. And the common people really are expected to bend like grass in whichever way the wind does blow. I think we can say with confidence that these sentiments from ancient Chinese philosophy have made their way into modern-day politics in China. These long-held values being expressed through Confucianism still have a big influence today on Chinese thought and Chinese culture. But while Confucian ideas being expressed here about how maintaining harmony in society comes from the top down, that is, in order to have a harmonious society, you have to have a virtuous leader at the helm who then inspires the people to be virtuous too. What we see instead in the modern world is far from this. What we see instead is state-sponsored oppression of the people. People are expected to bend and to fall in line through force not through example. And philosopher Julian Beghini in his book How the World Thinks talks about how this traditional ideal of harmony can be manipulated and misused in modern times or throughout Chinese history in some instances. Beghini says, and I quote, Throughout Chinese history, oppression has always been justified under the name harmony. China has a history of appropriating its own tradition, with very different figures each claiming to be true to the original values of Confucius. It's a strategy for gaining legitimacy. 
Most obviously, the Chinese government set a harmonious society as its goal under the leadership of Hu Jintao from 2002 to 2012. But for many, this was a kind of doublespeak, since what it in fact sought was uniformity. Harmonization becomes a euphemism for the elimination of dissent. So this is how we see this concept of harmony being abused at times in modern China. For one, the rulers of China and the CCP are not themselves exemplars of virtue. And as recent history shows us, this can be seen clearly and openly. Now, look at the Uyghur situation, for example. I can't speak on this intelligently because, well, I mean, not many people can because information out there is so sparse. But I think through the lens of Chinese philosophy and values like harmony, we can deduce what might be going on in Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs. The official messaging from the Chinese Communist Party is that the Uyghurs in the far west of China are being sent to re-education camps. And I think here we're, what we're seeing is a distortion of this value of harmony. By re-educating people who are ethnically different and have different cultural values and a different religion, China is basically just saying that harmony equals uniformity. They aren't tolerant of the Uyghurs being different from the rest of China. They expect conformity. Now, what this represents is this pursuit of this ideal of harmony at all costs. And maybe it started with re-education camps. China, though, values maintaining social harmony above all else. Even if it started with re-education camps, it will not stop at re-education camps. They value harmony more than they value human rights, religious freedoms, and personal liberties. We can see this in their ancient philosophy. Confucius never mentions human rights, or religious freedoms, or personal freedom at all. What he talks about instead is virtuous character, following traditions and rituals, promoting social harmony, and the system of top-down rule, preferably from a virtuous ruler who governs in a wu-wei sort of style. Now because China is so hyper-focused on maintaining social harmony, it's likely that they're going to go to whatever lengths they need to go to in their own eyes to establish this control, to establish and maintain a harmonious society, which in modern times is synonymous with a conformist and uniform society. And the CCP did the exact same thing with Tibet decades ago. They invaded Tibet, they declared Tibet a part of China, and they do not tolerate dissent here. Tibetan Buddhist leaders are expected to conform to the demands of the Communist Party. And this is why you have the Dalai Lama in exile in India for the past six decades. He can't step foot in China because he's seen as an enemy by the CCP. This ongoing perversion of this ideal of social harmony is easy to see elsewhere too. I mean, we've seen the swift destruction of liberty and democracy in Hong Kong. Initially, China promoted this one-country-two-systems approach to governing Hong Kong when it was given back to them by the British. That's no longer the sentiment. A democratic system that guarantees freedom of speech is an existential threat to China, especially when it comes from within. China simply can't tolerate having mainland Chinese people visiting Hong Kong or being influenced by this different political system of Hong Kong, this different set of rules that oddly enough exists within the same country, 
And also you have residents of Hong Kong being able to freely express their disapproval of CCP activities. And this is a big break from traditional values around social harmony and the common people not dissenting or questioning their rulers. It might also help to think about this relationship between China and Hong Kong and what it essentially amounts to. I mean, if it's a parent-child type relationship, then the child, which would be Hong Kong, is allowed to privately disagree with their parents, but not publicly. To do so publicly is to bring shame on the household. China expects Hong Kong to be completely loyal to them. Or maybe we could look at it as a big brother, little brother type situation. Hong Kong as the little brother must be respectful and take direction from the older brother, which is China. But by upholding democratic values and allowing Hong Kong people to speak out against China, well, this relationship just wasn't working. The little brother, in China's eyes, was being disrespectful towards the big brother. Or another way to look at it is a relationship of a ruler to subject, where China is the ruler and Hong Kong is the subject. Well, the relationship here is to be governed, according to Confucius, by this ideal of moral correctness or moral rightness. And this is a very subjective way of thinking about things. I mean, one person's view of rightness depends on which side of the equation they're on. Something that is morally right in China's eyes could be morally wrong in the eyes of Hong Kong, and vice versa. Now, looking at China's relationships with Hong Kong and with these other regions through the lens of these social relations examples, this does not excuse China's actions in any way whatsoever. I personally think the actions of China in Xinjiang, in Tibet, and in Hong Kong are atrocious. It amounts to the destruction of a culture, of a society, and frankly, of genocide of a people. Now, I'm trying to use philosophy here to shed a light on how China might think about and justify all of these things, all of these actions that they've been taking. Because in the West, I think we generally have a pretty poor understanding of China's motivations and their way of seeing the world. China is indeed, in my opinion, going about things in a terrible way, with this sort of top-down forceful control that seems to me the opposite of what Confucius was getting at when he talked about social harmony and this wu-wei style of governing from a virtuous ruler. The current situation in China is anything but. Instead of social harmony, we have discord and enforced uniformity and conformity. Instead of a hands-off wu-wei style of governance, you have government interventions at every level. You have mass surveillance of a people, a social credit system, and state violence against any form of dissent. And don't even get me started with the idea of having a virtuous ruler. I mean, clearly we're far from that. But at this point, it's simply not clear what other option the CCP has to maintain its control over the country. And then there are issues outside of China as well, or outside of mainland China. You have the Taiwan problem, for example. When I was in China speaking to locals there, I was told that Taiwan is a province of China, just that they're a bit of a rogue province. Just a bunch of weirdos trying out this democracy thing. They're sort of like, the analogy I was given was that Taiwan is like when you have a family member who's bad. They denounce their family and say they're going to go out on their own, and this causes momentary discord within the family, maybe 
causes the family to lose face because these familial ties, these sacred familial ties have been broken by this bad family member. But the idea here, taking the long view, is that eventually the wayward son finds his way home. Eventually, Taiwan will come back into the fold and rejoin China. So this is how China seems to view Taiwan. I mean, we see this in their official statements as well. We even see this infiltrating our global institutions, this view that Taiwan is just a part of China, despite what we're on seven decades now of Taiwan being an independent country or self-proclaimed independent country, recognized by some countries in the world, but not by all of them. Now, China sees this as a sort of internal affair, like an internal family affair. And just as you wouldn't want spectators talking about your own internal family affairs, so too China does not want the international community talking about their internal affairs or what they see as internal family affairs between China and Taiwan. Here I think there really is a huge difference between this traditional ideal of filial piety and the ideals of freedom and liberty that we have here in the West. Because in Western democratic liberal countries, if a grown adult denounces their parents and their parents follow them around demanding that they come back to the family, in the West we would see this as harassment. That's not lawful. But in China, this is a normal state of family affairs. And the longer the child continues to disobey the parents, the more the family loses face. They lose social status due to this family strife that's ongoing. Now, this might be an overly simplified version of what's going on between China and Taiwan. I mean, this whole podcast is overly simplified, if I'm being honest, but I think that might be what's going on between China and Taiwan. It's a possessive parent that won't let go. Because in Chinese culture, they have totally different family norms than we do in liberal democratic societies. While we're on the topic of geopolitics, why don't we look at some other relationships too? Like, look at the relationship between China and North Korea, which, I mean, probably is more like a big brother-little brother relationship than any of these other ones we just talked about. China, the big brother, is caring and supportive. North Korea, the little brother, is respectful and won't denounce China in any way, shape, or form. I mean, the two countries, they can't denounce each other because it would be like denouncing a family member. Now, South Korea and Japan also have strong cultural ties to China. Confucian values that originated in China have also spread to places like Korea and Japan and other places in Asia. And in South Korea and Japan, we see a breakdown in relations with China, almost like siblings that have broken these sacred bonds of familial ties. Which would explain why they're always bickering and agitating one another. China probably feels like the big brother of this region, and they aren't getting the respect that they think they deserve. There are also some unforgotten atrocities that Japan inflicted on China back in World War II. China, despite having occasional cultural amnesia perpetuated by the CCP, does generally have a very long memory, a long cultural memory. Now, if we look in the West, we've had our democratic systems of governance for what, like a few hundred years, if that? Our political systems that emphasize freedom and liberty are still relatively new. It's relatively recently that we've seen the rise of human rights that focus on these ideals of freedom and liberty for everyone equally. 
And on the other hand, here we have China that's had a dynastic system in place for over 3,000 years. This is an unbroken lineage of rising and falling Chinese emperors with a long and complicated history. The CCP might be a new way of organizing things, but it really does seem to be moving more towards the old imperial dynasty system of China rather than towards anything resembling communism or socialism. Here, Xi Jinping is like de facto leader and might remain in power for decades to come. He's sort of like the new emperor of China. And the CCP officials surrounding him are at this point his appointed ministers, just like in ancient times. If we were to look at the modern Communist Party of China as just another Chinese dynasty, which we could argue that it sort of is, just with a new aesthetic, then we can see how a place like China could hold a grudge for a really long time. For us in the West, a lot of Western countries have been able to forget and move on from atrocities that happened in World War II. Atrocities that saw tens of millions of people dying. I mean, we're best friends with Germany and Japan. That's easy for us when our democratic culture is relatively new. 80 years is a really long time when your democratic system is only a century or two old. And today, looking at the United States as an example, Germany and Japan were their biggest enemies 80 years ago, and now they're some of their closest allies. But for China, with their written history spanning back over 3,000 years, 80 years is just a blip for them. To them, the atrocities Japan committed against their people could have just as well happened yesterday. And I can confirm that being there, on the ground myself, that many people in China absolutely hate Japan. A lot of them love America, at least they did when I was there like eight years ago. But they have complicated relationships with a lot of other countries, especially with countries that they share a very long and contentious history with, including Korea and Japan. In a lot of ways, China is very focused on the long term. They take a very long view of history and progress. Unlike us in Western countries, we plan for things based on four- or five-year election cycles. If someone proposes an initiative that's going to take 10 years, well, what president or prime minister is going to support that unless they are pretty sure they're going to be around in 10 years? In China, though, they plan decades ahead. They might not be where they want to be right now, and they might be facing a lot of backlash and a lot of difficult times, but ultimately, in the history of China, everything they're experiencing in the modern day is just a blip. And in enough time, all of these blips will be forgotten. I think we're on the home stretch. I'm going to aim towards wrapping this up in a few, few more minutes here. We'll see how things go. But just to recap, I mean, there are a few principles in this teaching of Confucius that I think are being implemented poorly, to say the least, in modern China. The first we've been talking about is this idea or principle of harmony in society. This is a sort of a vision of a utopia, imagining this perfect system where the government acts benevolently and the people benefit. But this isn't the modern reality. The reality in modern China is more that of manufacturing confidence, and this can be achieved through a propaganda machine as we see in the CCP in modern China. With modern technology, it's become easier than ever to use propaganda to maintain the support of the people it's easier to do this through technology and propaganda than it is to maintain support in a free and open society. 
China might be the most extreme example of this right now, but I mean, look around the world and we see that the art of technological propaganda is being mastered by regimes around the world. Even in some liberal democratic countries, we see propaganda at work. It's also ironic that these values of Li and Ren that are central to Confucian thought and Chinese culture have been so subverted politically in China. Confucius teaches us that to truly embody Li and Ren, it has to come from within. Acting out a ritual without actually believing in it renders that ritual invalid in the eyes of Confucius. It's actually seen as an insult. But in modern China, so much of what we see is spectacle. We have this spectacle of correctness and right action and benevolent leadership, but it's not authentic, it's not true. It's a specter being used in propaganda to uphold the ruling regime. Another principle is this idea of a utopic vision of governance. Government made up of fully virtuous people who govern in this wu-wei sort of style. What we have instead is issues being addressed based on what their political merit will be. Actions are determined based on how they'll look to the common people rather than what the actual results are and what the actual benefit to society is. Something else to consider is that there's this Confucian view that the common people should be spared contentiousness by having this benevolent government who always acts rightly and handles every situation that comes up in a correct manner in this Wu Wei style. But this is the opposite of a democratic society. In the Confucian view, the common people aren't really supposed to participate in politics, at least not directly. But in a democratic society, the people are expected to participate and expected to be part of contentious discussions. Ideally, this type of contentious discussion in democratic societies would not be divisive, would not be polarizing. Instead, we should want it to be harmonizing and compromising. Different sides disagreeing on issues so that they find a middle ground, like ruler and minister finding a middle ground of right action. It seems that we're less and less willing to do that in the West, though. We're moving towards polarization, and there's less and less of a middle ground to stand on. These days, being in the center just means you're an enemy of both the left and the right, rather than a potential ally of both. Modern China seems to operate on the idea that the common people bend like grass to their virtuous ruler. Well, who gets to determine virtue? The ruler does, of course. If the ruler says that they're virtuous and correct, they're going to expect the common people to fall in line, to bend like grass. There's some ego here. The idea that any dissenters are assaulting the perfection of those in power, and these dissenters need to be removed because they threaten legitimacy. In his book, The Quest for a Moral Compass, philosopher Kenan Malik talks about how, with the collapse of China's most recent dynasty in the early 20th century, Chinese politics and ethics sort of lost their way. He says, and I quote, In China, ethical prescriptions had always been broadly secular. Confucianism had been little concerned with God or the soul, with sin or salvation, providing instead a pragmatic rules for behavior in this world, rules that stressed virtue, decorum, filial piety, and social discipline. The collapse of the dynastic structure and the disillusionment with the Confucian tradition that came with it wrenched free of the traditional moral anchor, just as the erosion of church authority had in Europe. But whereas in Europe social and intellectual tools had already been fashioned and new public spaces created for thinking anew about morality, 
In China, the collapse of the Qing dynasty left neither alternative systems of values nor the intellectual and cultural means through which to develop them. Now, what happened in the early 20th century was this collapse of the Qing dynasty. A government based on a constitution and styled as a republic tried to establish itself as its successor but was not successful. And as a result, China was again fragmented, without any strong centralized government. In its fragmentation, different regions of China were controlled by different warlords who had been military leaders. There was some idea here of forming a democratic republic in China, but it ended up being that China was governed by these fragmented military dictatorships for a couple of decades. And then came World War II, and the invasion of China in its weakened state by the Japanese Empire. This led to a significant amount of suffering among the Chinese people. During World War II, the Chinese nationalist government began centralizing control a little bit, and they were a close ally of the United States in the war against Japan. They were led by General Chiang Kai-shek. But following World War II, the Chinese Civil War began. While China was weakened from war and chaos following the collapse of the Qing Dynasty just a few decades prior. Now, here the Nationalist Party under Chiang Kai-shek was weakened from years of fighting against invasion and occupation by Japanese forces. The Nationalists did have better troops and better weapons and more territory and a lot of international support, including from the United States. But in the end, the Communist Party ended up overcoming the Nationalists, sending them into the sea and out to Taiwan. Taiwan today is the remnants of this old Chinese Nationalist Party that left the mainland and set up its government in exile on the island of Taiwan. Now, what had happened here was that the fall of the Chinese Qing dynasty in the early 20th century created a power vacuum that could never be filled. Until one day, the Communist Party led by Mao Zedong came along. And Mao grabbed all of this power by mobilizing the common people. The peasant class became radicalized by this communist ideal. I do wonder if part of this was this promise to return to a harmonious society. Communism does have some elements to it that promise a harmonious society that's free of class struggle. At the time, the Nationalist Party was a very militant organization because they were fighting against Japanese forces for like a decade. It may be the case that the common people, the peasant class in China, felt disconnected from this ruling republic. Many of the people in China would still have remembered the old dynastic system of the centralized control, and they would be very aware that the last few decades of chaos with its militant warlords wasn't serving the country well. And here along came communism, with its ideology of a utopic society being peddled by Mao Zedong, who may have tipped the scales in favor of communist rule of China. So the Communist Party of China did take over, they did centralize control. And Mao Zedong began the failed Great Leap Forward and then the Cultural Revolution that saw an attempt at a complete purging of traditional Chinese culture and values. This is the period where children were, were reporting their parents as dissidents. And here, once the CCP had established itself and centralized power, it was too late this new system had taken root. Under Mao, tens of millions of Chinese people died, largely from famine. 
So against this historical backdrop and all of this Confucian philosophizing, my question here is, where do we go from here? As China has opened up and become this economic powerhouse, the CCP has maintained its top-down control. But will it remain this way forever? Or will the gradual adoption of traditional values such as Confucianism lead to a sort of reset? So I'm left wondering if harmony might make a big comeback in its true Confucian form. I'm wondering if the teachings of Confucius might rise to greater prominence in China over the coming decades, while the doctrines of the CCP go into a decline. At least, this would be an optimistic view. As we talked about on the last episode, when China was conquered by the Mongol Empire, Chinese culture didn't die out. It rebounded within a matter of decades. It only took four decades before a Mongol emperor of China was essentially more educated in Chinese culture and Confucian values than in their own Mongol culture. The communist revolution in China ended in 1949, with Mao Zedong claiming victory. Maoism, this perverted form of communism, dominated Chinese politics into the 70s. We're now about four decades removed from the decline of Maoism and the gradual opening back up of China to the world. This most recent policy is called Kaiko Kaifeng, literally reform and opening up. When China's dynasty fell and the Communist Party took over, Kenan Malik says, and I quote, What had collapsed was not simply a particular dynasty, but the whole dynastic system. With it collapsed, too, the very basis on which it had been built for two millennia, China's social and moral order. Mao's China was built on the embrace of modernity and the rejection of tradition. But things have changed a bit and continue to change, and Confucianism seems to be making a wild comeback. Malik goes on to say, and I quote, The quicker has been the pace of economic reform over the past three decades, the greater has been the desire of the Chinese government to proclaim its commitment to Confucianism. It might turn out that Confucianism may actually be more compatible with capitalism than communism is. I mean, go figure. And who knows, maybe in time we might see a shift and even a renaming. Instead of the CCP being the Chinese Communist Party, they could covertly replace that second C. Replace communism with Confucian. It would still be the same old CCP, but signaling a return to more traditional values that are so predominant in Confucian thinking. The Chinese Confucian Party sounds kind of good. This communist thing is a total misnomer. There is nothing communist about modern China at all. It's one of the most extremely capitalist countries out there. Income inequality is massive. It's a system of state capitalism where the rich get richer, the middle class struggles for whatever sort of upward mobility they're being offered, and the poor remain poor. This is not communism. But in some ways, the capitalism we see today in China has brought about its own form of harmony. China sort of has a pact between its people and the rulers. The people are willing to tolerate the CCP as long as they bring about continued prosperity. And prosperity is what's allowing China to remain a somewhat harmonious society. This buzz of progress that I felt back when I was there in 2013 and 2014, which seems to be continuing today, although with maybe a few hiccups. 
But balancing out this march of progress is also the propaganda machine of the CCP and this top-down control. This is not free market capitalism, it's state-run capitalism. The CCP retains ultimate power, but they're far from the Confucian ideal of a virtuous leader who rules in this wu-wei sort of style. They are the complete opposite of that. I do wonder if there's a path forward here for China that doesn't involve top-down control from an authoritarian regime. A return to social harmony based on traditional Chinese values. There's a rich culture here that we could all benefit from and that we could all learn from. The current expression of Chinese culture as seen in mainland China today does not represent a peak. In many ways, China is still in one of those periods of chaos and decline. Modern China is also in a precarious situation called the middle income trap. Over the past several decades, only a handful of countries have transitioned from being middle income countries to being developed high income countries. And all of those have had either A, a flourishing democratic system based on liberal values, or B, very high reserves of oil. China has neither oil nor liberal democracy. Presumably, for China to become a developed, high-income country, they need a good dose of democratic liberal reform. Either that, or they'll end up becoming the first country ever to make the transition without one of these two things, if they do transition at all. And part of this is a bit of a catch-22. To create an innovative society with higher-wage earners, this knowledge and innovation economy that we have in most Western developed countries... This requires a highly educated middle class. But the more educated people become, the less tolerant they are of dictators. And dictators themselves don't want an educated population. So this is China's catch-22. To continue developing, logic says that they need some kind of education reforms. They need to have a higher educated middle class. But going this route puts the government under pressure. And not doing so also upsets this delicate pact where the people remain happy as long as GDP per capita continues to grow at a high pace. That growth seems to be slowing. Something here has got to give. Now, Confucianism being a philosophy based on self-cultivation and learning and developing a virtuous character is far more compatible with this liberalization than communism is. China does not have a history of freedom and liberty and innovation, but it does have other traditions that are somewhat compatible. Could the pendulum maybe swing in the other direction where China leverages its traditional Confucian ideals to bring about prosperity for its people? I mean, I suppose time will tell. But one thing that seems certain to me is that this authoritarian rule of the CCP is no longer compatible with a harmonious society. In every way I can think of, it's the opposite. In his book, How the World Thinks, philosopher Julian Baghini also says that harmony is actually a more universal value than even the idea of freedom that we put so much emphasis on here in the West. Harmony exists throughout East Asian Confucian-influenced societies, China, Korea, and Japan. It's also present in much of Africa and in indigenous Latin American societies. It's also present in Islamic philosophy and in Buddhism. Arguably, says Baghini, and I quote, 
Harmony already is and has usually been the preeminent global political value. I don't think we can understate here just how important this idea of harmony is to East Asian cultures, and also to many other cultures around the world. This philosophy of maintaining social harmony is perhaps a global philosophy. And we can see this being acted out on the world stage when we see that when harmony is being threatened, that's when dictatorships and authoritarian regimes prop up and take control. We might even say that most countries themselves are all trying to maintain this social harmony amongst themselves. In the West, we have this culture of maintaining harmony through expression of individual liberty and personal freedoms. But other countries with different traditions and different cultural contexts, like what we see with ancient Chinese philosophy, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to achieving this state of harmony in society. Now, I think we've gone quite a bit over time at this point, so I'm going to end things off there. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you all on the next one.